You're listening to the Law of Attraction Radio Network. Are you ready to change your life in the next 30 minutes? It's time for Power in a Half Hour with Coach Mark. Get your notebooks ready. He's about to go in. Five, four, three, two, one. Coach Mark, let's go. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for tuning in. This is Coach Mark, and you're listening to Power in a Half Hour. In the next 30 minutes, we're going to learn the tips, tricks, and techniques of the rich and the super-duper successful so we can become the rich and the super-duper successful. So the quote that we're going to start today's show with is, Chains of habit are too light to be felt until they are too heavy to be broken. And that's from the great Warren Buffett. The title of today's show is, Breaking bad habits. I know we all got some bad habits that we know we need to break. All right, well, stay tuned. We're going to have some great, 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 great tips and techniques on how we can get rid of some of those bad habits. I want to thank all of you for listening. I want to remind you, if you ever want to go back and re-listen to not only this show, but any of the previous 130-something other shows, you can go to www.powerhh.com. That's www.powerhh.com. If we're not friends on Facebook, my name on Facebook is Mark Starr. That's M-A-R-K-S-T-A-R-R. On Instagram, it's at Coach Mark Speaks. That's at C-O-A-C-H-M-A-R-K-S-P. E-A-K-S, all right? And we also have the Power and a Half Hour Facebook group. For all my listeners in the United States of America, sorry overseas listeners, but if you'd like to get my daily motivational messages, all you have to do is text the letters BBD to 411247. That's text the letters BBD, like boy, boy, dog, to 411247. And if you have not had an opportunity to download my book, you can download it for free at www.repeataftermebook.com. All right, we got an amazing show today. Let's go ahead and get started. Profile number one, Michael Dubin. Now, Michael grew up in Pennsylvania, and after graduating high school, he went to Atlanta to attend Emory University. After graduating, he moved to New York City where he took several jobs in marketing and advertising. At night, he took classes in accounting, corporate finance, and improv comedy. This combination helped him to see business as a fluid, ever-changing space. Michael says that the reason he took improv classes is that it teaches you to use what's given to you and to make the most out of it. You can't be overly stuck to the way you had outlined things in your head at the beginning of a venture. In 2011, Michael met a friend's father-in-law at a party. While they were having cocktails, the man told him that he needed to unload a warehouse full of surplus razor blades. Now, this is an absolutely amazing story, so please make sure you pay attention to this. This is where Michael's improv skills kicked in and he offered to help. He then thought about how frustrating the razor buying process was for men. You go to the store, ask a salesperson to open a glass case that the razors are in, and then pay a large sum of money for a small pack of razors. He thought to himself, if he could mail razor blades to customers for a lower price, men would appreciate the problem that he was solving. What was Michael? A problem solver. He saw a problem and came up with a solution for a problem. Now, Michael also saw a bigger opportunity. He realized that American men were evolving in their bathroom routine. 
Men were spending more time on personal hygiene and no other companies had tried to build a company around affordable men's grooming products. Michael saw the opportunity in this and felt that he could supply this need. Within a week, he registered the domain name dollarshaveclub.com and he began sketching out his ideas for men's grooming empire. A few months later, he quit his job to work on the business full time. In March 2012, a year after the company was founded, Michael published a video that announced Dollar Shave Club to the world. The video cost $4,500 to make, which Michael used from his very little savings. And the video became an instant hit. The company took 12,000 orders that day. Now, this same video has been watched 24 million times on YouTube. Michael took what he learned from marketing marketing and intentionally timed the release of the video right before the South by Southwest event where reporters were waiting for big digital news to break. Also during this same month, he was able to raise $1 million in seed funding. His video and the news of his company went viral and hasn't slowed down since. Michael started the company as a one-man operation and, it, and as it grew, he added on more employees. He and his small team began traveling all over the country to learn about men's grooming habits. They would focus on going to regional festivals and getting men to talk about grooming. Seven months after their first round of funding, the company raised another $9.8 million in Series A funding. Now, keep in mind now, this is a company that he started with very little money. He found someone that had a warehouse full of razors, and he said, you know what? I could figure out something to do with these razors. I could come up with a solution. There's someone right now that has product that they can't use, that they can't figure out how to get rid of. And if you can come up with a solution to that problem, if you can help them figure out how to get rid of their problem, trust me, you can make a whole lot of money. Now, a year later, they raised another $12 million with this new round of funding, Dollar Shave Club was able to expand its product line to include a dozen other men's products in 2014. In June 2015, the company secured another $75 million in funding. Now, while raising the last round of funding, one of the investors connected Michael with the president of Unilever's North American Operations. Now, Unilever is the world's largest consumer goods company, owning over 400 brands, including Axe, Dove, Surf Detergent, Hellman's, Lipton, Lux Soap, Ben & Jerry's, as well as hundreds of other brands. They operate in over 190 different countries. Michael thought that this could be a great opportunity to get the president of Unilever on his company board. Unilever had different plans for Michael and his company. They wanted to get into the men's shaving market that was dominated by Gillette. In 2016, five years, just five years, after he started the company, Unilever bought the $1 Shave Club for $1 billion with a B dollars. $1 billion and has allowed Michael to stay on to continue to grow the company. What well, absolutely amazing story. This guy had no money, right? He just happened to be talking to someone at a cocktail party and this man tells him that, hey, I got a warehouse full of razors. And he says, you know what? I can do something with it. His wheel started turning. He was like, I can do something with it. 
And that was his business that he sold five years later for $1 billion. So many times we think that we need to have all this money and all these resources. No. The answer to our problems is standing right there in front of us. Now, what would have happened if Michael would have said, you know what? Man, sucks for him. He has all those razors and can't get rid of it and went on to go have another drink or went on to go talk to somebody else. No, opportunity presented itself to him and he took advantage of the opportunity. And a billion dollars later, profile number two, Francis Greenberger. Now, Francis was born in Queens, New York. His father was a literary, a, a literary agent and his mother was a German immigrant. By the time he was 12, he was doing bookkeeping for his dad's business. Now, everyone that wants to do real estate, really pay attention to this story because this is another amazing story of how someone started a real estate company with absolutely no money. His family didn't have a lot of money, so he would only get about a nickel a week. He thought it would be nice to have money, so he delivered newspapers and shoveled snow. At age 14, he represented a German book club in buying American books to distribute in Germany. His dad wanted to avoid a conflict with another German publishing company that he represented, so he told the first company that Francis could help them. He didn't mention to them that he was only 14. Remember now, he started doing bookkeeping for his dad's business at age 12. Now at age 14, he was starting his own business. He looked like he was 18, so people assumed that he was older. Francis would buy hardcover books for 50 cents at the time. They were being sold in paperback, and nobody was buying them anymore in hardcover. He would then sell them for $1.25. At the age of 14, he was making the equivalent of $60,000 a year. When Francis rented an office for his book business, he got more space than needed, so he sublet half of the space and made enough money to pay for the whole place. Wow, that is such a great idea. This man said, you know what? No, not man. This kid said, I'm going to get double the amount of space that I need, keep half the space for my business, rent out the other half, and make enough money to pay for the whole thing so I don't even have to pay for my own office space. What a genius idea. Now, shortly after, Francis borrowed $5,000 from his father to start Time Equities. This was his real estate company. After he did this first deal, he said to himself, you know what? This real estate thing might not be so hard after all. So he started to learn more and more about real estate than borrowed $5,000 from his father to start his real estate business. He became so involved in business that at age 16, he decided to leave high school. He would go to night school to get his degree and later would attend Baruch College. Now, one of his first big deals came when his father had a friend at a real estate company that was struggling with some office buildings that they couldn't rent. Francis didn't have enough money to buy the property, so he entered into a lease deal where he paid $1 for the lease and they would split any rent that he collected. Another way that this guy saw a problem and was able to help somebody else solve their problem. What did it cost him? Nothing. He signed the lease for a dollar, so it cost him a dollar. And that's how it was his big way to get into this business. Now, 
When his father died in 1970, when he was 21, he decided to concentrate on real estate full time. He figured that most books sold to publishers for thousands of dollars, but buildings sell for millions of dollars. Francis started buying buildings that needed a lot of work at incredibly low prices using money from friends and family who invested with them. Later on, he would start to get bank loans. Through the 1970s, he bought about 20 apartment houses, fixed them up, and raised the rents. His biggest challenge back then was money because he didn't have any. In 1975, Soho, a neighborhood in lower Manhattan, was full of warehouses, but artists were moving in and he knew that things were changing. He was able to see that, you know what? Something's about to happen in this area. I got to get in. I got to get in. Now, an estate sale was selling two buildings and he offered the lawyer $75,000. But guess what? He didn't have any money at the time. Francis got the lawyer to give him a second mortgage for $20,000, and then he got the bank to loan him the other $55,000. So he was able to buy these two buildings with no money out of his pocket. The bank would only finance a certain percentage of the building. So he got the lawyer to finance the other part. So he's able to buy the building for $75,000 with no money out of his pocket. This is how he was able to buy these two buildings for no money at all. Now, today, he still owns both of these buildings, and they are worth $75 million. Two buildings that he bought with no money out of his pocket. Here it is, what, 40 years later? They're worth $75 million. Now, in the late 1970s, he moved into co-op sales, which made three to four times what you'd get in a private investment sale. Over the next seven years, his company converted 100 buildings in New York, approximately 10,000 apartments, into co-ops. Francis became known as the co-op king of New York for his ability to convert pre-war apartment buildings into occupant-owned residences, which offered tenants the ability to become owners and create new wealth. Although Francis started to do well, he still had challenges over the years. Up until 1985, all of the properties that he owned were in New York City, so he began to look for markets that others were ignoring or not seeing potential in. He then began to buy properties in these markets. Two years later, there was a change in real estate tax laws, and Black Monday also occurred, where the stock market dropped dramatically. Suddenly, there was a major recession, and this became a difficult time for his business as buyers couldn't get mortgages. The value of his buildings went down, and he owed more money than the buildings were worth, so he sold some buildings to pay the loans. Fortunately, his business was able to survive. Then in 1990, his first son died in an accident. He cried every day for a year. Then Francis realized that he had two choices, either to join him in the hereafter or to go on living and know that he will eventually see his son again one day. He chose the second option. Francis says that hardships give you an ability to empathize with others. His second son, Morgan, has suffered from mental illness ever since he was age three. In 2012, he was arrested for stealing $20 from a taxi driver. When he was tried, Francis started studying what happens to mentally ill people in the justice system. He realized that sending them to prison was not the answer, so he founded the Greenberger Center for Social and Criminal Justice to do advocacy work. 
Again, Francis faced adversity when the real estate market crashed in 2008. Although he felt a great deal of fear, he realized that his job was to do the best that he could. The company made sacrifices, taking decreases in pay to avoid firing people. His company, again, was able to survive the 2008 recession. Today, his company's assets are valued at $4 billion. And in 2016, they had $336 million in revenue. Once again, this is a guy that started the business with very little money. Now he has a billion dollar company, multi-billion dollar company. Now Francis has been able to do some amazing things over the years. Let's now take a look at some of the wisdom lessons that we can learn from him. There's a whole lot that we can learn from this guy. Number one, exercise independent thinking. Don't follow the herd. He says that a lot of the world thinks New York is a wonderful place to invest, and it is but not if the prices are too high. Francis doesn't think that the upside of New York's investment real estate value is in balance with the downside right now. He doesn't do what everybody else does. Everybody else is investing in New York, but he realizes that the prices are overpriced. So he goes and finds other markets where the property value is underpriced, and that's where he makes his money. Number two, go to the person who controls the problem. If you don't have rent money, you might want to go to your family or the bank for a loan. But the person who really controls the problem is the landlord. So talk to your landlord and work out a solution before the rent is due. And number three, start early and stay organized. Francis says that his workday starts around 4 a.m. doing emails and correspondence until around 9 a.m. when meetings start. This allows him to stay very organized and well-prepared for anything he may face throughout the day. Now, it was Zig Ziglar who said, all bad habits start slowly and gradually. Before you have the habit, the habit has you. Now, we are the sum of our habits. If we allow bad habits to take over, they dramatically impede our path to success. If we know how dangerous bad habits can be, why is it that so many people find it difficult to stop these bad habits? Even habits such as smoking that can be detrimental to our health, people still find these habits difficult to stop. Now, when we initially think of the word habit, activities such as smoking, drinking, gambling, and drugs usually spring to mind. What many of us don't realize is that these aren't the only habits. We spend most of our days engaged in one habit or another, and this, for the most part, is a good thing. Psychologists estimate that habits of one sort or another account for roughly 45% of our daily life. Now, during these times, rather than relying on reason or motivation, we shift into automatic pilot and depend on context, automated actions, time pressure, and low self-control to provide the engine for our behavior. The reason why this happens is because our brains would quickly become overloaded if we had to think about everything that we did. Good habits make life easier by using our brains more efficiently. Bad habits make life harder. In some cases, can be harmful or deadly. Now, the automatic nature of habits is what makes them hard to control or change. Whether they are good or bad, old habits are attractive to our brains because they require less energy. This is why developing new habits can be difficult. They initially force your brain to work harder and less efficiently than it would like to. Even though our brains are very smart, they are also very lazy. 
Activities such as counting or riding a bicycle are stored in our long-term memory, and we can engage these activities with relative ease. The brain looks at these activities like it were a can opener or a dishwasher. They are labor-saving devices. Another way to look at these activities are that they are any procedure that you follow regularly that may involve dozens of steps and that is stored as a single routine that can be initiated by a single command. You essentially can push a button to activate the routine instead of painstakingly repeating each step. Habits work very similar to this. This is why they're so hard to get rid of and to change. And a great example of this would be putting on your shoes and tying your laces. If we were to list each step in the process, it makes it look rather intimidating. Yet we do this activity every day without even thinking about it. This is why good habits can be so hard to form and bad habits so hard to break. The good news is that once we learn to sufficiently strengthen and establish a new and rewarding habit, your brain will automatically choose it instead of the old one. Now, before we can change bad habits and establish good ones, we need to first understand the components of a habit. Now, a typical habit has three components, a cue, a routine, and a reward. The cue is a specific stimulus or combination of stimuli a cue can practically be anything, a place, an emotion, a time of day, a thing, or even a word or phrase. The cue is what triggers the routine. The routine is the habit itself. The nature of the routine can vary from something very simple such as a smile or a frown or something more complex such as your morning routine or the route you drive to work in the morning. Initially, it is the anticipation of a reward that drives the routine and ensures that the activity gets stored in our long-term memory. The reward might be food or drugs or simply a feeling of relaxation, accomplishment, or satisfaction. Establishing good habits or getting rid of bad ones involve the same three basic skills. Number one, goal setting and motivation. Goal setting gives us a destination so that we at all times know exactly where we are going. It provides the needed focus for initiating a new habit or getting rid of an old one. Most successful goals share two key qualities. Number one, there is an emotional basis for the motivation. The goal that you set should make your eyes light up when you think of it or you should feel fear at the possibility of failing to reach it. If you don't feel either of these, then it's probably not a good goal for you. A goal without emotion is a goal that is almost guaranteed to fail. You have to feel some sort of emotional way about this goal if you want to be able to accomplish it. Number two, the goal setter is able to visualize not only reaching that goal, but also more important, the process involved in achieving it. Visualizing the steps you plan to take in pursuit of your goal is like practicing an emergency drill. It lays down the track for a neuronal pathway in your brain that you can follow to achieve your particular goal. Then when the time comes to pursue that goal, not just in your head, but in the real world, the route you're going to take has already been established. Your brain doesn't know the difference between something you imagine and something you physically experience. So by visualizing it, you are training your brain not only what to expect, but also what to do. The second step in establishing a good habit or getting rid of a bad habit is number two, getting started. 
Even when we have clear goals and carefully thought out plan and great expectations, many of us have still have problems with getting started. Procrastination is usually what stops us from initiating a habit change. Big goals can seem intimidating unless broken down into small, manageable steps. Kaizen, which in Japanese means continuous improvement, is the practice of using small steps. Now, Kaizen operates using six basic principles, which all place emphasis on small. Let's now take a look at the six principles of Kaizen. Number one, ask small questions. When we ask big questions, we tend to trigger a threat response in our brain. Small questions can often be fun. If your goal seems too large or intimidating, simply ask yourself, what is one small step that I can take towards reaching that goal? Number two, think small thoughts. Now that you've answered your question, it's time to visualize yourself acting on it. Remember, the brain learns better in small increments instead of large doses. If you isolate a task that you are afraid of or that makes you uncomfortable, then gradually visualize yourself beginning to work on it. Over time, your mind's attitude toward the task will be reshaped. Number three, take small actions. Small questions and small thoughts ultimately require small actions. Most times, action steps for our goals can be too intimidating when we look at what the result of the final goal should be. For example, if we set a sales goal to talk to 300 prospective clients per month, it can be intimidating when we look at that number 300. If we just focus on making one call every hour, which would equal 10 calls per day in a 10-hour day, which would equal 300 calls per month if we worked every day, gets us to our same goal, yet is less intimidating. Number four, solve small problems. Your awareness of the small problems should help you reduce the probability that you will make the same mistakes again. While you're at it, ask yourself whether the small mistakes are leading to bigger problems. Number five, give small rewards. As we now know, most of the habits we engage in were originally triggered by the expectation of some sort of reward. Scientists have also determined that small rewards can often be a greater source of motivation than larger ones. And number six, identify small moments. The little things can sometimes mean a lot. When you're walking along a path, it's not the big boulder on the path that prevents you from reaching the end of the path. It's the small pebble in your shoe. Another example of this is when a former CEO of an airline discovered that he could save the company an estimated $40,000 a year simply by removing just one olive from the salads that the company would provide its passengers for free. So just removing one olive, and who's going to know the difference between whether a salad has five olives or six olives? He saved his company $40,000. So sometimes just one small action can cause a huge difference. Now that we've grown accustomed to doing things a certain way and the process becomes habitual and energy efficient, when we do anything that takes us out of this comfort zone, the brain sounds an alarm by waking up our amygdala, which triggers the flight or fight threat response. The secret of Kaizen is that it operates below the radar of your brain's threat response. Now, the third basic skill in establishing good habits or getting rid of bad habits is staying on track. Now, studies show that of the 50% of Americans that make New Year's resolutions, 92% of these people fail. 
When we use our willpower to try and instill good habits or change bad habits, it's like we are using one gallon of fuel to drive 500 miles in a gas guzzler vehicle. It just can't be done. Our brain is always looking for the most efficient way to do things. We do this by transforming these goals into habits. These goals or resolutions work best when they become automatic, triggered by a cue that provides a recognizable signal to your unconscious that tells it to activate a particular routine. Now, we could go on for another hour talking about this, but we have run out of time. If you guys want more information on this, most of the information I pulled is from a book called The Leading Brain by Federique Fabridius. All right, all right. Well, that's all the time that we have for this show. Want to remind you, if you want to go back and re-listen to the show, which I highly advise, you can go to www.powerhh.com. That's www.powerhh.com. Now, I know you got three friends that have some bad habits that could benefit from hearing what we talked about today. So make sure you share this with them. Tell them about the station that you're listening to this show on, or they can just go back to my website and search for this show and listen to this one. And at the same time, go back and listen to all the other ones as well, right? Okay, okay, okay. So the quote that we're going to end today's show with is, a change in bad habits leads to a change in life. Let me tell you something. If you want to change your life, all you need to do or where you need to start is to start working on changing some of those bad habits that you have. If you do that, you will start to see tremendous changes in your life. Thank you much. And until next show. Thanks for listening to Power in a Half Hour with Coach Mark. To listen or re-listen, go to powerinahalfhour.com. Follow Coach Mark on Instagram and Twitter at Coach Mark Speaks. Find Coach Mark on Facebook by searching for Mark Star. Like our Facebook fan page, Power in a Half Hour, and join our Power in a Half Hour Facebook group. See you next week.